Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, an archive of Robert Lewis's sermons while at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We hope you are encouraged and deepen in your love of Christ while enjoying this podcast. Here is this week's message. In Hebrews chapter 9, so if you have your Bibles, turn with me. And uh, if you're here for the first time, we want you to know we're working through this letter to the Hebrews, and we just finished a few weeks back the first, first section of this letter, which dealt with encouraging these people to move on into a spiritual life. And then when we came to chapter 7, uh, as we mentioned several weeks ago, we kind of move into a parenthesis of sorts where this writer moves into the very heart of Judaism to demonstrate that Christianity is much better. And we learned in chapter 7 that Christianity presents a better priesthood. Last week, as Bill Parkinson preached, he told us that there's a much better covenant between man and God in the Christian faith, as opposed to this old covenant that these Hebrew Christians once participated in in Judaism. And now we come to chapter 9, probably one of the most difficult chapters of all the Bible, uh, because it deals with so much uh, cultural symbolism in the temple and the place of worship. And uh, what this writer will argue through this chapter, although we'll only look at some of the highlights of it, is that in Christianity, we have a better place of worship. It's not just a house. Uh, Polly Adler, many years ago, uh, came up with what is credited to her as a modern-day proverb. She said, a house is not a home. And uh, I thought when I uh, uh, thought thought of that is that that's a great summary of Hebrews chapter 9. The argument is, is that a house is not a home. Now, I've been in a lot of spectacular houses uh, in my lifetime, the privilege of walking through people's homes because they say a lot about people. And some of the more memorable ones was that uh, a number of years ago, I went through the Hearst Castle. It was actually a home of William Randolph Hearst, the great newspaper baron. And uh, what an incredible home that was. I, I remember in particular the, uh, the uh, gold inlaid tile of that indoor swimming pool that he had. That was particularly impressive. I remember going to Mount Vernon just a few years ago and going through the home of George Washington and uh, just just the sense of history standing in his bedroom, looking at his bed, the bed in which he died, the President of the United States. I remember going to uh, Arlington and uh, touring the home of Robert E. Lee. And if you've ever been there, you can stand out on the front porch of that grand mansion and overlook the city of Washington. And uh, I thought, wonder what it felt like to be standing there as one who had given allegiance to the United States and making that dreadful decision to split and go with his uh, countrymen that he had grown up with in joining the southern forces against the northern armies. And then uh, just uh, last year, we toured the Biltmore House. Some of you have been to Asheville, North Carolina. The Biltmore House is the largest single-family dwelling in the United States, built by the uh, 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 Vanderbilt family great newspaper, uh, I mean, uh, railroad barons, and the uh, uh, thing that was most impressive about that is it had 60-plus bedrooms in it. Now, that's a home. Imagine Mrs. Vanderbilt having to clean that every day. <laughs> you know, houses can make a strong statement about people. The Jews had a house. These houses make strong statements, and uh, any home, in some ways, is portrays an image of sorts, doesn't it? Uh, your home does, my home does, the homes in which we visit. They say something about our style. They say something about our class. Uh, They may say things that are maybe not true of us, uh, uh, but we want people to believe that they're true of us, that we have a certain sophistication, a 
a certain power, a certain uh, economic status. Uh, I think that's why, quite frankly, we give a lot of attention to the homes we live in because they portray an image of ourselves. And we want people to evaluate us rightly just because we're evaluating them rightly. At least we're thinking we are when we walk through their homes. Aren't you, aren't you always evaluating when you go to someone's home for the first time? Don't you? You walk in and you look around and maybe you look at the colors of their home and you think, gosh, how did they, how did they know to put those colors together? I mean, I would have never thought that, but they, they, that, that was genius the way they did that. And you kind of, in some ways, you feel they're smarter than me. And then you go in and you look at their kitchen and they've got the rotating cabinets and all that. And you think about your cabinets and all of a sudden your cabinets don't look so good. And they say, man, that, 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 was, that was really smart to do that. They get so much space that way. Uh, maybe you go up and you're impressed with some of the things you don't have. Maybe they got a hot tub in their kid's bathroom and you go, now, now they got some, they, they must have some money here to do that. And uh, maybe they're real neat. And, and you get the impression, these people have really got life under control. I mean, I had not been around people that all over the house, their carpet looks like, well, it kind of looks like the grass at Candlestick Park. Have you ever seen the grass at Candlestick Park? It has those different shades in it from the good vacuuming. <laughs> and uh, maybe even they vacuum their attic like some do in our body. I mean, that's a guy that's got his life under control. <laughs> But you know, just about the time we go through someone's home and we're about to get this, these probably um, over-exaggerated impressions. And a lot of us spend a lot of time on our homes because we want to give that, because a lot of it's not true of us, but we want people to think that. Polly Adler gives this quote that kind of bursts the bubble. She, she reminds us of something that brings our feet right back on the ground, makes us remember there's reality here when she gives that quote, a house is not a home. A house is not a home. There may be a lot of space. But see, you don't really know if there's a lot of love. There may be a lot of charm there. But that hasn't told you whether there's any grace that resides there. They may be neat, but are they having any fun? See, a house is not a home. We always need to be reminded of that. You know, when it comes to our faith, that's true as well. A house is not a home. We can get so caught up in the externals and to be externally oriented that we lose sight of what is the real thing of the Christian faith. We can, as many Christians do, get caught up in liturgy. We can get up, caught up in holidays, holy days, religious observances, church services programs, activities, all those kind of things, and yet in all that external stimulation in which we're giving observance to those things and being impressed by a large congregation or a large event and all those things, we can admit the essence of the Christian faith. The holiness, the purity, the sense of acceptance, forgiveness, direction, calling, purpose, Meaning. See, Hebrews 9 is about some people who were tempted to sacrifice the internals and going back to some externals. To go back to Judaism and the Old Covenant, but in our chapter, to go back to Judaism and have a, a house. A place where they could go and they could see things 
And they could go through religious motions and rituals and, and kind of tidy up stuff rather than have to live in a much vaguer existence of dealing with an invisible God by faith, placing all your heart in His hands and what He said for a lifetime regardless of what the external conditions were like. You know, these Hebrew Christians had celebrated in the house. Their fathers, their grandfathers, their great-grandfathers, they had all been in this physical place to worship. And it's so easy to make the physical place the endpoint of worship, which is, again, what Hebrews 9 elaborates on. They had had this temple. And before that, when God made the covenant with Moses, He gave them a tabernacle. That's what's spoken about in chapter 9, verse 2, this tent-like meeting place where they could worship God. And a brief description is given in those first seven chapters. Let me read it and then we'll talk about what that actually says. It says, Now even the first covenant had regulations of divine worship and the earthly sanctuary. For there was a tabernacle or a tent, that's really what it was, prepared. The outer one, that is this outer room, there was a lampstand and a table and sacred bread that is called the holy place. And behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle which is called the holy of holies. So let me stop there and just tell you, he's talking about this tent and this tent had two rooms, an outer room and an inner room. The outer room was the holy place, that's verse 2. The inner room was the holy of holies place. And in the holy of holies, verse 4, there was a golden altar of incense and the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold. It was a very simple box covered in gold, in, inside of which was a golden jar holding manna when they were out in the wilderness, and Aaron's rod which budded, and the tables of the covenant, that is the Ten Commandments. And above this box were the cherubim, or angels of glory, overshadowing the mercy seat which was on top of this box. But of these things, the writer says, we cannot speak in detail. And there is a lot of detail, by the way. Now, when these things had been set up or prepared, the priest would continually enter this outer room performing divine worship. But in the Holy of Holies, the second room, only the high priest enters once a year, not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people that were committed in, in, in ignorance. Now, let's go back and talk about this tabernacle. As it mentions there in verses uh, 2 through 4, it had two divisions of space. Uh, the outer space had three pieces of furniture, and they're found there for you. Uh, in verse 2, there was a lampstand, and it says a table and bread. Those weren't the three pieces. The table and the bread went together. There was this lampstand, then there was a table with bread on it. Now, the third piece is found in verse 4. It says a golden altar of incense. There was an altar of incense, but if you'll notice in verse 4, it's listed as being in this other room, the Holy of Holies. Let me just stop because sometimes people get confused there. That altar of incense was in the Holy of Holies only one day a year. And that's what's on the writer's mind. That was on the Day of Atonement. That, that altar of incense was carried into the Holy of Holies. But the other 359 days of the year, because the Jews had a 360-day calendar, it was out in this outer room. So there were three pieces of furniture out there. There was the lampstand, bread, and then there was the altar of incense. Now, these priests, these Levitical priests, were the only ones who could go and, 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 and uh, perform rituals of service in this outer room. They would go in, and here's what they would do day after day. 
they would go in and they would change the wicks on the lampstand so that there would be light in, the, in that little inner room all the time. They would go in and change out the bread so the bread wouldn't get stale. The priest would eat the bread, but they would replace it with new bread as an offering to God. And then they would constantly go in and, and change out the incense and keep the fires burning so there was this sweet aroma in this first holy place. Not the holy of holies, but this holy place. That's what the Levitical priest did. Now, if you'll notice in verse 7, there was that second room, that holy of holies place, where only one time of year, the priest, the high priest of Israel, would go in and he would enter that holy place after a very elaborate ceremony carrying the blood of a bull that he had sacrificed. And he would carry it to this little golden box which carried the Ten Commandments with these two angels, these cherubim, looking down and there was a space in between. And in this little vacant space in between, once a year, the Scripture says in Exodus 25, God would appear and present Himself to this high priest as He came in. Now they were looking down on this box with the Ten Commandments. And that priest walked in very tenderly to that box with the blood because what God in this symbolism was illustrating was that I am asking you to fulfill my old covenant which is that you're going to do my law. And I'm looking at the law and looking at you and you're not doing it. So the priest would come in with the blood and he would pour the blood on the top of that box. It had a little rim around it which was called the mercy seat, and it would fill up with blood so that no longer could the angels or God, symbolically speaking, look at the law, but now the law had been covered with blood. And in so doing, God would no longer hold Israel for that year accountable to not living up to the law, but would excuse Israel on the basis of this blood offering. Now that's what went on in the house of God. Year after year, this tabernacle for Israel under this old covenant. That's how they lived under the old covenant. That's how they appeased God's wrath as they went through those exercises. But now, here's what I want you to know. There were limitations to this old covenant. In fact, I'm going to give you three lim limitations that are found in verses 8 through 10 that they should have known about, but unfortunately they missed every year. And for the average Jew, he would tend to collapse back into what I call spiritual impoverishment. And by the way, I want you to listen closely because the application is for us here this morning. But here are the three limitations. And the limitations could only be truly felt through the Holy Spirit because suddenly in verse 8 he says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this. Well, what does he mean there? Well if they were to listen closely, the Holy Spirit would tell them three things about all this temple worship and all this house and all these rituals and all these sacrifices. And basically, here's what the Holy Spirit's going to say. This house is not your spiritual home. Now here's why. Three things. First of all, this house is just temporary. It's not permanent. You see, he says, the Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place, the real holy place, has not been disclosed while this outer tabernacle is still standing. In other words, if you were to really listen to me and listen to my word and listen to my spirit, you would know all this exercise and religious ritual that's going on. It's just a, it's a temporary thing. But I've got something that's, that's greater than that. That, that is, a, is, a, is a greater holy place. 
And you need to be striving for that. Now, how did they know that there was that? Just because they kind of kind of felt it through the Holy Spirit? No, the Holy Spirit had sent prophets to tell these people that this covenant they were under was passing away. That's chapter 8. Remember, go back to chapter 8 just for a minute. In chapter 8, verse 8, here's an Old Testament quotation. While these people are under the law, this Old Testament law, the prophets were shouting, days are coming, verse 8, when I will effect a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not like the covenant I've already made. That covenant's going to pass away. Look down at verse 11. And you won't have to have a priest go in and meet with God just once a year. You won't have to have priests come out and teach the fellow citizens of Israel to know the Lord because they'll all have access to me. And they'll all know me. And you won't have to just cover your sins once a year. Just cover them. But I will, according to verse 12, be merciful to your iniquities and there will come a time where I remember your sins no more. But here's the problem. Israel came to think of all this ritual as the end point of their faith. That when they came to the temple or the tabernacle, when they delivered their sacrifices, when they listened to the priest, well, that's just the way it was going to be for all time. And you just went through those motions and you were done. But if they'd listened to the Holy Spirit, they would have known this is just something temporary trying to picture something better that's coming that's permanent. Secondly, if you look at verse 9, it says the tabernacle was just simply symbolic and they should have known that. Notice it says it's just a symbol for this present time. And when Jesus Christ came on the scene, he, His statements showed that He was the reality. I mean, remember those lampstands? They were trimming out those wicks all the time to keep things lighted. And what did Jesus say when He came? I am the light of the world. <laughs> remember all that bread they were working with? They didn't really understand it. They just, God had told them, just keep taking the bread out. And they did that ritualistically without ever getting to the reality. But when the reality came and said, I am the bread of life, they missed Him. They went through all this incense burning, but it was Jesus who said, I am continually interceding for you. Because incense is a symbol of prayer. When they took the blood in of bulls and goats year after year after year, and Jesus came and said, I'm going to shed my blood. The reality. They missed all that. You see, what happened was, they saw all the stuff they were going through as something that was just permanent. And there was nothing higher than that. Scripture says, no, you missed it. There is. This was just to lead you to something higher. So the temple was limited in that it was temporary. Secondly, uh, thirdly rather, which is probably the greatest or most important limitation, is that the tabernacle and all these rituals were powerless to change a person's life. Look there. It says in verse 9, accordingly, both the gifts and the sacrifices, all these things that are offered, they cannot make the worshiper perfect in conscience. Since all these things are really, and here I'm going to add, paraphrase here, they're just external things. They relate only to food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed upon you for a time until the time of reformation. Real reformation. But here's what Israel did. See, the sacrifices, they'd come to kind of become accustomed to because it just simply appeased God. But I think any Israelite, as they demonstrated when they rushed out to John the Baptist when he came on the scene preaching repentance, 
they knew in their heart that it wasn't changing their life. All this ritual was not affecting real change. And so they had a choice to make. They could either listen to the Holy Spirit and really seek the God who the temple only pictured, or they could make the temple something that was an end in themselves, and unfortunately many did that, and they reduced their faith to ceremony. They paid their tithes, they offered their sacrifices, they honored the feast days, they did all the things the temple required, and here's what was in their mindset. They really began to think that's all that God required. Just going through those motions. And thus, having, so to speak, paid God off, having satisfied these rituals, having gone to the temple for another Sabbath, having made the priest happy by bringing the sacrifice and paying the tithes, they then could walk away in a sense, in spiritual delusion, thinking, I've done what God requires, now I'm going to do what I want to do. And that's how the nation of Israel lived for hundreds of years. They got to where they thought the tabernacle was a spiritual home. But their lives demonstrated it was only a spiritual house, and a house is not a home. Now I say that because that same affliction plagues the Christian church. Making the church and church activities and all that goes on here the end point. You know, it's real easy to fall back into an old covenant Christian life and make all the activities and things that go on an end point in and of themselves. And when church is done, you're done. Years ago, I was invited to a wedding by a friend of a friend of an acquaintance. It was kind of that kind of deal. And uh, I went, and I remember it was a very interesting ceremony because I went, it was a beautiful sanctuary. And I was impressed with the, the uh, detailed liturgy that went on. There was a lot of readings. There was the uh, reciting of creeds. Uh, there was, in this wedding ceremony, a confession of sin uh, by the congregation as well as the couple. Uh, there was... Uh, a call for blessing and holiness and purity by God. And uh, uh, I, I was in the midst of all that, especially with the fervor that the people participated, I have to admit, I, I was really moved to worship in that setting. And I was impressed that many of the people, because I know, I just knew that many of the people, you could tell they were regular church goers, because when they would recite many of the creeds, they did so by memory. When they sang the songs, there was no... Uh, uh, video up there, nor was there any uh, songbook. They just sung them from memory. And so I have to admit, I left there impressed. And then I went to the reception. And when I went to the reception, with like it was like we didn't even change gears, but we went from that place to a nightclub atmosphere. We really did. And uh, for a moment there, I was kind of trying to work through all that. I was trying to shift gears internally myself. But as the as the evening went on, it, it moved from just a party to drunkenness, out-and-out out drunkenness. Uh, a number of people I engaged, there was inappropriate behavior taking place there. There was crass and crude jokes being told. And uh, the, the whole thing just completely was a turnabout for me, personally. And I knew it was Saturday night. And when I left there, I turned to my wife and I said, I'll bet you that tomorrow morning, every one of these people will be in church. Now, the question that I want to ask, were those people hypocrites? 
See, the first thought is to say, yeah, they were. They were. But you know, I want to make the suggestion that I don't think they were. I really do not think they were hypocrites. I think that their religious traditions, their house had become an endpoint of their faith. And they had been somehow taught in that understanding. They had reduced their faith to rituals and, and uh, a checklist of things to do and, 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 and places to be and money to give to a point that once they did all the things, they had it nicely controlled and now they were free to go do what they wanted to do knowing that they could come back and ask God for mercy and make statements of confession saying, well, God, you accept me in spite of the way I lived. They made it a house. But it was not a home. And Israel was, or not Israel, but these Hebrew Christians were in great danger of going back to that kind of lifestyle which is old covenant. It's dead. It's passed away. But we can resurrect it in the church of Jesus Christ every day. <laughs> I went to church. I went to community group. You know? Uh, uh, I went to this particular event. And in some ways, feeling like we're appeasing God by doing those things. We've done our religious duty. Now I can get on with my life. And what happens is, is over time, we create a religious system that's totally divorced from real life. Now, does that ring a bell in American Christianity today? <laughs> in fact, do you hear even politicians and people talking about, because I, I really believe that real life Christians are going to be persecuted in the 90s, that we're going to be told to keep your faith at church, don't bring it into real life? And the church can easily adapt to that and say, yeah, just bring it here. Do what we need to do. Pay your tithes. Give your offerings. Be in attendance. Now go out and do what you want to do. That's old covenant though. There's no way to grow in Christ with that mentality because a house is not a home. And my greatest fear as I have seen fellowship grow over the years, as our body grow, is that perhaps some of you will come here and you will enjoy fellowship. You will enjoy your community group. You will enjoy the worship. But you will not find Jesus. You will not find a new way of life. You'll participate in all the house duties. But you'll hang on to the way you want to live. That's old covenant. That's not the new covenant that's in Christ. That's not what He's offering. What is it like to live at home with Jesus Christ? Because Jesus Christ is home. Remember, we've moved through this little Jewish parenthesis uh, using some modern day analogies. And we've talked about how you cannot be at home substituting seminars for Jesus Christ. We said you can't be at home substituting health care workers, counselors, priests, psychologists, and psychiatrists for Jesus Christ. can't do that. And I wasn't picking on those any more than in this session that you can't be at home using the church as a substitute for Jesus Christ. It's old covenant. The church is a house. Jesus Christ is home. So what's it like to be at home with Jesus Christ? Well, we can't go through all of this chapter. It's just too detailed here for this session. But 
what I want you to do is look at just a few phrases that tells us what the advantages are of being at home with Jesus Christ. Look at verse 12. There are three of them. The first, he says, that we come not through the blood of bulls and goats, but what He has done is entered the holy place once for all, and it gives this phrase, having obtained eternal redemption. See, in a house, a house Christianity that's based on ritual and ceremony, the focus will always be on finding acceptance with God. That's why people show up at Easter and Christmas and, and special holy days. It's kind of like, you know, I need to go check in and see if I'm okay. <laughs> so they go and they feel okay and they say, I must be okay. So they go out and live their life the way they want to live it again till next year at that time. But it's just not in those extremes. We can get in much less extremes than that. And we can be full participants in the house duties, but never encounter real redemption. One of the ways that you know you're in the house of Jesus Christ is in His house, apart from the way it looks, it feels, it smacks of the feeling of acceptance. And why? Because He has obtained eternal redemption for you. You're not trying to, to find out if you're okay. You know He's made you okay, and it's just good to be there. And so one of the marks to me of knowing I've, I've found a spiritual home with Jesus Christ is when I think about Jesus Christ, I feel secure. I feel accepted. Regardless of my warts, I feel like I'm acceptable to Him. And if you don't know that here today, then you need to seek out Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you're wondering, am I in the house or am I in the home? I can tell you one of the marks of Christians who are at home. They don't have to serve Jesus Christ, but they want to serve Jesus Christ. They want to serve the living God. No external constraints. Nobody's telling them that they have to. Nobody's warning them, if you don't do this, somehow you're going to miss out or threatening them. They are led from within. They want to. They want to serve this God who loves them so much. It's coming out of the energy of that love relationship. Ephesians 2.10 says that God created us for good works, that we should walk in them. What's your purpose as a Christian? To be limp in what God has done for you? Or is because of what He's done for you, there is motivation to do something for Him? That's how you know you're really at home. Then look finally at verse 15. It says, it talks about this mediator of a new covenant. At the end of that statement, He says, He says, those who have been called may receive the promise of an eternal inheritance. What He's talking about here is that Christians who are at home with their Lord, they have a healthy expectation of the future. We realize that what we do and how we do it is not going unnoticed by our God. All of life suddenly has purpose and meaning. There's reward. There's commendation. There's honor. There's glory in living well. 2 Corinthians 5.10 says it more clearly. It says, for we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ and be recompensed or rewarded or repaid for every deed done in this body. Now, for the Christian who lives in a house, 
that verse will always sound like a threat. Every deed done in the body? Judgment seat? But for the Christian who lives at home with Jesus Christ, that sounds like a thrill. <laughs> Golly, it's going to be great because, Lord, you have noticed everything that I do. People haven't. They've not rewarded me. They don't know how I struggle to overcome this situation. They don't know how I fought through this particular problem. You know, I've reached out to these individuals and it's really helped them, but, but you know, they've not done anything for me. But I thank you that that's not gone unnoticed. I thank you that you're a God who records it all. And that one day, as my Father, I'll stand before you, not perfect, and no one is, but that the atmosphere, the, the environment of being there, is of celebration for a life well lived, not a threat of, so you're here. See, that's how some of us feel. But when we feel that, we're just in a house, going through motions, and we've not connected to the higher, more permanent, ultimate reality of Jesus Christ Himself. That's the new covenant. You see, a spiritual house is where you rest in acceptance. You know your home when you feel security of that acceptance, when you enjoy your sense of service. There's no prodding, there's no force, there's no oppressive threats that you've got to do this or you should do that. It just flows out of you. Where there's an expectation of the future because you know that your friend Jesus has not forgotten. I'm going to skip over the rest because of time, but I want to go down to Roman numeral 3 and look at how to move from a house to a home. I'm just going to give you two things that you can take with you. First of all, this. You need to reject external substitutes. You know, we're, we're almost at the end of this, this parenthesis. But if this, these chapters, 7, 8, 9, and 10, say anything, they say this. You will never get to where you want to be spiritually as long as you look outwardly. You'll never get there. You'll always be thinking that someone or something or some place or some event holds the key to your internal spiritual life. And what Jesus Christ wants you to know is, I'm the key and I'm already in there. Turn to me. It's the new covenant. Home, if I can use this other modern day proverb, is where the heart is. And that's number two. Receive Christ. Reject external substitutes. Receive Christ into your heart. <laughs> now that sounds like an invitation to non-Christian, doesn't it? But I'm not offering it that way this morning. That's an invitation to Christians. Receive Christ into your heart. When will there come a time, and I speak only to those of you who feel a certain pressure at my words, when will there come a time where you're going to decide that the Christian life is not a course, it's not an education, it's not an affiliation, it's not church attendance, it's not doing certain religious duties, it's not saluting on holy holidays. What will it take to convince you that the Christian life is coming to a place 
where you sell out in your heart for Jesus Christ internally and in the power of that engagement, there is want to, there is service, there is acceptance, there is love, there is freedom, and there is expectation of a grand future. It has to come from without. Anything else is a house. And a house will never be a home. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, it's, it's so good to be reminded in the world in which we live that You and You alone are the real thing. And Lord, I ask forgiveness for myself. Uh, I confess that oftentimes, without even knowing it, I find myself going through religious motions thinking that that's okay. Constructing my own modern day tabernacle. Lord, forgive me for that. But Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it reminds us that the calling is to every man and every woman on an individual basis to meet the living Lord who wants to engage them in the heart and that anything other than that Anything other than that is worthless. I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning that this church would not be an entertainment center where we enjoy the activities that are here and miss the living Lord who wants to meet us here. I pray that we would be men and women, as the Scripture says, of God, who in their hearts have Christ, who is our hope of glory. And out of the thrill of that relationship and out of the power and the change that comes in that relationship, that the church is not contained to Henson and Napa Valley, just like it was contained at one time just to the city of Jerusalem. But the church goes out as light and salt to the whole world as Christ works through us. Lord, help us to be that kind of living church. And we can then praise you, not because we have to, <laughs> but because we want to. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.